Welcome to Radio Read Along, a podcast for the whole family, featuring dramatic word-for-word readings of classic stories for all ages. In today's episode, Adam Andrews reads chapters 53 and 54 of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. You can follow along in your own copy of the story, or sit back, relax, and let your mind's eye do the work. Previously in Great Expectations, Pip and Herbert set a date for enacting their plan to save Provis. Two days before the appointed time, however, Pip is whisked away by a threatening anonymous letter. To secure Provis, he must keep a mysterious appointment back at the marshes where his history began. Now, let's join the story in progress. Chapter 53 It was a dark night, though the full moon rose as I left the enclosed lands and passed out upon the marshes. Beyond their dark line there was a ribbon of clear sky, hardly broad enough to hold the red large moon. In a few minutes she had ascended out of that clear field, in among the piled mountains of cloud. There was a melancholy wind, and the marshes were very dismal. A stranger would have found them insupportable, and even to me they were so oppressive that I hesitated, half inclined to go back. But I knew them well, and could have found my way on a far darker night, and had no excuse for returning, being there. So, having come there against my inclination, I went on against it. The direction that I took was not that in which my old home lay, nor that in which we had pursued the convicts. My back was turned toward the distant hulks as I walked on, and though I could see the old lights away on the spits of sand, I saw them over my shoulder. I knew the lime-kiln as well as I knew the old battery, but they were miles apart, so that if a light had been burning at each point that night, there would have been a long strip of the blank horizon between the two bright specks. At first I had to shut some gates after me, and now and then to stand still while the cattle that were lying in the banked-up pathway arose and blundered down among the grass and reeds. But after a little while I seemed to have the whole flats to myself. It was another half-hour before I drew near to the kiln. The lime was burning with a sluggish, stifling smell, but the fires were made up and left, and no workmen were visible. Hard by was a small stone quarry, It lay directly in my way, and had been worked that day, as I saw by the tools and barrows that were lying about. Coming up again to the marsh level, out of this excavation, for the rude path lay through it, I saw a light in the old sluice-house. I quickened my pace and knocked at the door with my hand. Waiting for some reply, I looked about me, noticing how the sluice was abandoned and broken, and how the house, of wood with a tiled roof, would not be proof against the weather much longer, if it were so even now, and how the mud and ooze were coated with lime, and how the choking vapor of the kiln crept in a ghostly way towards me. Still there was no answer, and I knocked again. No answer still, and I tried the latch. It rose under my hand, and the door yielded. Looking in, I saw a lighted candle on a table, a bench and a mattress on a truckle bedstead, As there was a loft above, I called, Is there anyone here? But no voice answered. Then I looked at my watch, and finding that it was past nine, called again, Is there anyone here? There being still no answer, I went out at the door, irresolute what to do. It was beginning to rain fast. Seeing nothing save what I had seen already, I turned back into the house and stood just within the shelter of the doorway, looking out into the night. While I was considering that someone must have been there lately and must soon be coming back or the candle would not be burning, it came into my head to look if the wick were long. I turned round to do so and had taken up the candle in my hand when it was extinguished by some violent shock and the next thing I comprehended was that I had been caught in a strong running noose thrown over my head from behind. Now, said a suppressed voice with an oath, I've got you. What's this? I cried, struggling. Who is it? Help! Help! 
Not only were my arms pulled close to my sides, but the pressure on my bad arm caused me exquisite pain. Sometimes a strong man's hand, sometimes a strong man's breast was set against my mouth to deaden my cries, and with a hot breath always close to me, I struggled ineffectually in the dark while I was fastened tight to the wall. And now, said the suppressed voice with another oath, call out again and I'll make short work of you. Faint and sick with the pain of my injured arm, bewildered by the surprise and yet conscious how easily this threat could be put in execution, I desisted and tried to ease my arm were it ever so little. But it was bound too tight for that. I felt as if having been burnt before, it were now being boiled. The sudden exclusion of the night and the substitution of black darkness in its place warned me that the man had closed a shutter. After groping about for a little, he found the flint and steel he wanted and began to strike a light. I strained my sight upon the sparks that fell among the tinder and upon which he breathed and breathed, match in hand, but I could see only his lips and the blue point of the match, even those but fitfully. The tinder was damp, no wonder there, and one after another the sparks died out. The man was in no hurry and struck again with the flint and steel. As the sparks fell thick and bright about him, I could see his hands and touches of his face, and could make out that he was seated and bending over the table, but nothing more. Presently I saw his blue lips again breathing on the tinder, and then a flare of light flashed up and showed me Orlick. Whom I had looked for, I don't know. I had not looked for him. Seeing him, I felt that I was in a dangerous strait indeed, and I kept my eyes upon him. He lighted the candle from the flaring match with great deliberation, and dropped the match and trod it out. Then he put the candle away from him on the table so that he could see me, and sat with his arms folded on the table and looked at me. I made out that I was fastened to a stout perpendicular ladder a few inches from the wall, a fixture there, the means of ascent to the loft above. Now, said he, when we had surveyed one another for some time, I've got you. Unbind me, let me go. Ah, he returned, I'll let you go. I'll let you go to the moon. I'll let you go to the stars, all in good time. Why have you lured me here? Don't you know, said he, with a deadly look, why have you set upon me in the dark? Because I mean to do it all myself. One keeps a secret better than two. Oh, you enemy, you enemy. His enjoyment of the spectacle I furnished, as he sat with his arms folded on the table, shaking his head at me and hugging himself, had a malignity in it that made me tremble. As I watched him in silence, he put his hand into the corner at his side and took up a gun with a brass-bound stock. Do you know this, said he, making as if he would take aim at me. Do you know where you saw it afore? Speak, wolf. Yes, I answered. You cost me that place. You did. Speak. What else could I do? You did that, and that would be enough without more. How dared you come betwixt me and a young woman I liked? When did I? When didn't you? It was you as always give old Orlick a bad name to her. You gave it yourself. You gained it for yourself. I could have done you no harm if you had done yourself none. You're a liar, and you'll take any pains and spend any money to drive me out of this country, will you? Said he, repeating my words to Biddy in the last interview I had with her. Now I'll tell you a piece of information. It was never so well worth your while to get me out of this country as it is tonight. Ah, if it was all your money twenty times told to the last brass farden. As he shook his heavy hand at me with his mouth snarling like a tiger's, I felt that it was true. What are you going to do to me? I'm a-going, said he, bringing his fist down upon the table with a heavy blow and rising as the blow fell to give it greater force. I'm a-going to have your life. He leaned forward, staring at me, slowly unclenched his hand and drew it across his mouth as if his mouth watered for me, 
and sat down again. You was always in old Orlick's way ever since you was a child. You goes out of his way this present night. He'll have no more on you. You're dead. I felt that I had come to the brink of my grave. For a moment I looked wildly round my trap for any chance of escape, but there was none. More than that, said he, folding his arms on the table again. I won't have a rag of you. I won't have a bone of you left on earth. I'll put your body in the kiln. I'd carry two such to it on my shoulders, and let people suppose what they may of you. They shall never know nothing. My mind, with inconceivable rapidity, followed out all the consequences of such a death. Estella's father would believe I had deserted him, would be taken, would die accusing me. Even Herbert would doubt me when he compared the letter I had left for him with the fact that I had called at Miss Havisham's gate for only a moment. Joe and Biddy would never know how sorry I had been that night. None would ever know what I had suffered, how true I had meant to be, what an agony I had passed through. The death close before me was terrible, but far more terrible than death was the dread of being misremembered after death. And so quick were my thoughts that I saw myself despised by unborn generations, Estella's children and their children, while the wretch's words were yet on his lips. Now, wolf, said he, afore I kill you like any other beast, which is what I mean to do and what I have tied you up for, I'll have a good look at you and a good goad at you. Oh, you enemy! It had passed through my thoughts to cry out for help again, though few could know better than I the solitary nature of the spot and the hopelessness of aid. But as he sat gloating over me, I was supported by a scornful detestation of him that sealed my lips. Above all things, I resolved that I would not entreat him, and that I would die making some last poor resistance to him. Softened as my thoughts of all the rest of men were in that dire extremity, humbly beseeching pardon as I did of heaven, melted at heart as I was by the thought that I had taken no farewell, and never now could take farewell of those who were dear to me, or could explain myself to them, or ask for their compassion on my miserable sorrows. Still, if I could have killed him, even in dying, I would have done it. He had been drinking, and his eyes were red and bloodshot. Around his neck was slung a tin bottle, as I had often seen his meat and drink slung about him in other days. He brought the bottle to his lips and took a fiery drink from it, and I smelt the strong spirits that I saw flash into his face. Wolf, said he, folding his arms again, old Orlick's are going to tell you something. It was you as did for your shrew sister. Again, my mind, with its former inconceivable rapidity, had exhausted the whole subject of the attack upon my sister, her illness, and her death, before his slow and hesitating speech had formed these words. "'It was you, villain,' said I. "'I tell you it was your doing. I tell you it was done through you,' he retorted, catching up the gun and making a blow with the stock at the vacant air between us. "'I come upon her from behind, as I come upon you tonight. I give it her.' I left her for dead, and if there had been a lime-kiln as nigh her as there is now nigh you, she shouldn't have come to life again. But it weren't old Orlick as did it, it was you. You was favored, and he was bullied and beat. Old Orlick bullied and beat, huh? Now you pays for it. You done it. Now you pays for it. He drank again and became more ferocious. I saw by his tilting of the bottle that there was no great quantity left in it. I distinctly understood that he was working himself up with its contents to make an end of me. I knew that every drop it held was a drop of my life. I knew that when I was changed into a part of the vapor that had crept towards me but a little while before, like my own warning ghost, he would do as he had done in my sister's case— make all haste to the town, and be seen slouching about there drinking at the alehouses. My rapid mind pursued him to the town, made a picture of the street with him in it, and contrasted its lights and life with the lonely marsh and the white vapor creeping over it, into which I should have dissolved. 
It was not only that I could have summed up years and years and years while he said a dozen words, but that what he did say presented pictures to me and not mere words. In the excited and exalted state of my brain, I could not think of a place without seeing it or of persons without seeing them. It is impossible to overstate the vividness of these images, and yet I was so intent all the time upon him himself. Who would not be intent on the tiger crouching to spring that I knew of the slightest action of his fingers? When he had drunk this second time, he rose from the bench on which he sat and pushed the table aside. Then he took up the candle and, shading it with his murderous hand so as to throw its light on me, stood before me, looking at me and enjoying the sight. Wolf, I'll tell you something more. It was old Orlick as you tumbled over on your stairs that night. I saw the staircase with its extinguished lamps. I saw the shadows of the heavy stair rails thrown by the watchman's lantern on the wall. I saw the rooms that I was never to see again. Here a door half open, there a door closed, all the articles of furniture around. And why was old Orlick there? I'll tell you something more, Wolf. You and her have pretty well hunted me out of this country, so far as getting an easy living in it goes, and I've took up with new companions and new masters. Some of them writes my letters when I want some wrote. Do you mind? Writes my letters, Wolf. They writes fifty hands. They're not like sneaking you as writes but one. I've had a firm mind and a firm will to have your life since you was down here at your sister's burying. I ain't seen a way to get you safe, and I've looked arter you to know your ins and outs. For says old Orlick to himself, somehow or another, I'll have him. What? When I looks for you, I find your Uncle Provis, eh? Mill Pond Bank and Chinks's Basin and the old green copper rope walk, all so clear and plain. Provis in his rooms, the signal whose use was over. Pretty Clara, the good motherly woman, old Bill Barley on his back, all drifting by as on the swift stream of my life, fast running out to sea. You with a uncle, too. Why, I'd knowed you at Gargery's when you was so small a wolf that I could have took your weasen betwixt this finger and thumb and chucked you away dead. As I'd thoughts o' doing, odd times, when I see you loitering amongst the pollards on a Sunday. And you hadn't found no uncles then, no, not you. But when old Orlick come for to hear that your uncle Provis had most like wore the leg iron what old Orlick had picked up, filed asunder on these meshes ever so many year ago. And what he kept by him till he dropped your sister with it, like a bullock, as he means to drop you. Eh? When he come for to hear that, eh? In his savage taunting, he flared the candle so close at me that I turned my face aside to save it from the flame. Ah! he cried, laughing, after doing it again. The burnt child dreads the fire. Old Orlick knowed you was burnt. Old Orlick knowed you was smuggling your Uncle Provis away. Old Orlick's a match for you, and knowed you'd come tonight. Now I'll tell you something more, Wolf, and this ends it. There's them that's as good a match for your Uncle Provis as old Orlick has been for you. Let him wear them when he's lost his nevy. Let him wear them when no man can't find a rag of his dear relation's clothes, nor yet a bone of his body. There's them that can't and that won't have Magwitch, yes, I know the name, alive in the same land with them, and that's had such sure information of him when he was alive in another land, as that he couldn't and shouldn't leave it unbeknown and put them in danger. Perhaps it's them that writes fifty hands, and that's not like sneaking you as writes but one. Beware Compison, Magwitch, and the gallows. He flared the candle at me again, smoking my face and hair, and for an instant blinding me, and turned his powerful back as he replaced the light on the table. I had thought a prayer, and had been with Joe and Biddy and Herbert before he turned towards me again. There was a clear space of a few feet between the table and the opposite wall. 
Within this space, he now slouched backwards and forwards. His great strength seemed to sit stronger upon him than ever before. As he did this with his hands hanging loose and heavy at his sides, and with his eyes scowling at me, I had no grain of hope left. Wild as my inward hurry was, and wonderful the force of the pictures that rushed by me instead of thoughts, I could yet clearly understand that unless he had resolved that I was within a few moments of surely perishing out of all human knowledge, he would never have told me what he had told. Of a sudden he stopped, took the cork out of his bottle, and tossed it away. Light as it was, I heard it fall like a plummet. He swallowed slowly, tilting up the bottle by little and little, and now he looked at me no more. The last few drops of liquor he poured into the palm of his hand and licked up. Then, with a sudden hurry of violence and swearing horribly, he threw the bottle from him and stooped, and I saw in his hand a stone hammer with a long, heavy handle. The resolution I had made did not desert me, for without uttering one vain word of appeal to him, I shouted out with all my might and struggled with all my might. It was only my head and my legs that I could move, but to that extent I struggled with all the force until then unknown that was within me. In the same instant I heard responsive shouts, saw figures and a gleam of light dash in at the door, heard voices and tumult, and saw Orlick emerge from a struggle of men, as if it were tumbling water, clear the table at a leap and fly out into the night. After a blank, I found that I was lying unbound on the floor, in the same place, with my head on someone's knee. My eyes were fixed on the ladder against the wall when I came to myself, had opened on it before my mind saw it, and thus as I recovered consciousness I knew that I was in the place where I had lost it. Too indifferent at first even to look round and ascertain who supported me, I was lying looking at the ladder when there came between me and it a face, the face of Trab's boy. "'I think he's all right,' said Trab's boy in a sober voice. "'But ain't he just pale, though?' At these words the face of him who supported me looked over into mine. Then I saw my supporter to be... "'Herbert! Great heaven!' "'Softly,' said Herbert. "'Gently, Handel. Don't be too eager.' "'And our old comrade Startop!' I cried, as he too bent over me. "'Remember what he is going to assist us in,' said Herbert, "'and be calm.' The illusion made me spring up, though I dropped again from the pain in my arm. "'The time has not gone by, Herbert, has it? What night is tonight? How long have I been here?' For I had a strange and strong misgiving that I had been lying there a long time, a day and a night, two days, and two nights more.' The time has not gone by. It is still Monday night. Thank God. And you have all tomorrow, Tuesday, to rest in, said Herbert. But you can't help groaning, my dear Handel. What hurt have you got? Can you stand? Yes, yes, said I. I can walk. I have no hurt but in this throbbing arm. They laid it bare and did what they could. It was violently swollen and inflamed, and I could scarcely endure to have it touched. But they tore up their handkerchief to make fresh bandages and carefully replaced it in the sling until we could get to the town and obtain some cooling lotion to put upon it. In a little while we had shut the door of the dark and empty sluice house and were passing through the quarry on our way back. Trab's boy, Trab's overgrown young man now, went before us with a lantern, which was the light I had seen come in at the door. But the moon was a good two hours higher than when I had last seen the sky, and the night, though rainy, was much lighter. The white vapor of the kiln was passing from us as we went by, and as I had thought a prayer before, I thought a thanksgiving now. Entreating Herbert to tell me how he had come to my rescue, which at first he had flatly refused to do, but had insisted on my remaining quiet, I learned that I had in my hurry dropped the letter open in our chambers, where he, coming home to bring with him Startop, whom he had met in the street on his way to me, found it very soon after I was gone. Its tone made him uneasy, and the more so because of the inconsistency between it and the hasty letter I had left for him, 
His uneasiness increasing instead of subsiding after a quarter of an hour's consideration, he set off for the coach office with Startop, who volunteered his company to make inquiry when the next coach went down. Finding that the afternoon coach was gone, and finding that his uneasiness grew into positive alarm as obstacles came in his way, he resolved to follow in a post-chase. So he and Startop arrived at the Blue Boar, fully expecting there to find me, or tidings of me. But finding neither, went on to Miss Havisham's, where they lost me. Hereupon they went back to the hotel, doubtless at about the time when I was hearing the popular local version of my own story, to refresh themselves and get someone to guide them out upon the marshes. Among the loungers under the boar's archway happened to be Trab's boy, true to his ancient habit of happening to be everywhere where he had no business. And Trab's boy had seen me passing from Miss Havisham's in the direction of my dining place. Thus Trab's boy became their guide, and with him they went out to the sluice house, though by the town way to the marshes, which I had avoided. Now, as they went along, Herbert reflected that I might, after all, have been brought here on some genuine and serviceable errand tending to Provis's safety, and bethinking himself that in that case interruption must be mischievous, left his guide and startop on the edge of the quarry, and went on by himself, and stole round the house two or three times, endeavouring to ascertain whether all was right within. As he could hear nothing but indistinct sounds of one deep, rough voice, this was while my mind was so busy. He even at last began to doubt whether I was there. When suddenly I cried out loudly, and he answered the cries and rushed in, closely followed by the other two. When I told Herbert what had passed within the house, he was for our immediately going before a magistrate in the town, late at night as it was, and getting out a warrant. But I had already considered that such a course, by detaining us there, or binding us to come back, might be fatal to Provis. There was no gainsaying this difficulty, and we relinquished all thoughts of pursuing Orlick at that time. For the present, under the circumstances, we deemed it prudent to make rather light of the matter to Trab's boy, who I am convinced would have been much affected by disappointment if he had known that his intervention saved me from the lime-kiln, not that Trab's boy was of a malignant nature, but that he had too much spare vivacity, and that it was in his constitution to want variety and excitement at anybody's expense. When we parted, I presented him with two guineas, which seemed to meet his views, and told him that I was sorry ever to have had an ill opinion of him, which made no impression on him at all. Wednesday being so close upon us, we determined to go back to London that night three in the post-chase, the rather as we should then be clear away before the night's adventure began to be talked of. Herbert got a large bottle of stuff for my arm, and by dint of having this stuff dropped over it all the night through, I was just able to bear its pain on the journey. It was daylight when we reached the temple, and I went at once to bed, and lay in bed all day. My terror as I lay there of falling ill and being unfit for tomorrow was so besetting that I wonder it did not disable me of itself. It would have done so pretty surely in conjunction with the mental wear and tear I had suffered, but for the unnatural strain upon me that tomorrow was so anxiously looked forward to, charged with such consequences, its results so impenetrably hidden, though so near. No precaution could have been more obvious than our refraining from communication with him that day. Yet this again increased my restlessness. I started at every footstep and every sound, believing that he was discovered and taken, and this was the messenger to tell me so. I persuaded myself that I knew he was taken, that there was something more upon my mind than a fear or a presentiment that the fact had occurred and I had a mysterious knowledge of it. As the day wore on and no ill news came, as the day closed in and darkness fell, my overshadowing dread of being disabled by illness before tomorrow morning altogether mastered me. My burning arm throbbed, and my burning head throbbed, and I fancied I was beginning to wander. I counted up to high numbers to make sure of myself, and repeated passages that I knew in prose and verse. 
It happened sometimes that in the mere escape of a fatigued mind, I dozed for some moments or forgot. Then I would say to myself with a start, Now it has come, and I am turning delirious. They kept me very quiet all day, and kept my arm constantly dressed, and gave me cooling drinks. Whenever I fell asleep, I awoke with the notion I had had in the sluice house that a long time had elapsed and the opportunity to save him was gone. About midnight I got out of bed and went to Herbert with the conviction that I had been asleep for four and twenty hours and that Wednesday was past. It was the last self-exhausting effort of my fretfulness, for after that I slept soundly. Wednesday morning was dawning when I looked out of the window. The winking lights upon the bridges were already pale. The coming sun was like a marsh of fire on the horizon. The river, still dark and mysterious, was spanned by bridges that were turning coldly gray, with here and there at the top a warm touch from the burning in the sky. As I looked along the clustered roofs, with church towers and spires shooting into the unusually clear air, the sun rose up, and a veil seemed to be drawn from the river, and millions of sparkles burst out upon its waters. From me, too, a veil seemed to be drawn, and I felt strong and well. Herbert lay asleep in his bed, and our old fellow student lay asleep on the sofa. I could not dress myself without help, but I made up the fire which was still burning and got some coffee ready for them. In good time they too started up strong and well, and we admitted the sharp morning air at the windows and looked at the tide that was still flowing towards us. "'When it turns at nine o'clock,' said Herbert cheerfully, "'look out for us and stand ready, you over there at Mill Pond Bank.'" Chapter 54 it was one of those March days when the sun shines hot and the wind blows cold, when it is summer in the light and winter in the shade. We had our peacoats with us, and I took a bag. Of all my worldly possessions, I took no more than the few necessaries that filled the bag. Where I might go, what I might do, or when I might return were questions utterly unknown to me. Nor did I vex my mind with them, for it was wholly set on Provis's safety. I only wondered for the passing moment as I stopped at the door and looked back, under what altered circumstances I should next see those rooms, if ever. We loitered down to the temple stairs and stood loitering there, as if we were not quite decided to go upon the water at all. Of course I had taken care that the boat should be ready and everything in order. After a little show of indecision, which there were none to see but the two or three amphibious creatures belonging to our temple stairs, we went on board and cast off. Herbert in the bow, I steering. It was then about high water, half past eight. Our plan was this. The tide, beginning to run down at nine, and being with us until three, we intended still to creep on after it had turned and row against it until dark. We should then be well in those long reaches below Gravesend, between Kent and Essex, where the river is broad and solitary, where the waterside inhabitants are very few, and where lone public houses are scattered here and there, of which we could choose one for a resting place. There we meant to lie by all night. The steamer for Hamburg and the steamer for Rotterdam would start from London at about nine on Thursday morning. We should know at what time to expect them, according to where we were, and would hail the first, so that if by any accident we were not taken aboard, we should have another chance. We knew the distinguishing marks of each vessel. The relief of being at last engaged in the execution of the purpose was so great to me that I felt it difficult to realize the condition in which I had been a few hours before. The crisp air, the sunlight, the movement on the river— and the moving river itself, the road that ran with us, seeming to sympathize with us, animate us, and encourage us on, freshened me with new hope. I felt mortified to be of so little use in the boat, but there were few better oarsmen than my two friends, and they rowed with a steady stroke that was to last all day. 
At that time, the steam traffic on the Thames was far below its present extent, and watermen's boats were far more numerous. Of barges, sailing colliers, and coasting traders, there were perhaps as many as now, but of steamships, great and small, not a tie, there were a twentieth part so many. Early as it was, there were plenty of scullers going here and there that morning, and plenty of barges dropping down with the tide. The navigation of the river between bridges in an open boat was a much easier and commoner matter in those days than it is in these, and we went ahead among many skiffs and wherries briskly. Old London Bridge was soon passed, and old Billingsgate Market with its oyster boats and Dutchmen, and the White Tower and Trader's Gate, and we were in among the tiers of shipping. Here were the Leith, Aberdeen, and Glasgow steamers, loading and unloading goods, and looking immensely high out of the water as we passed alongside. Here were colliers by the score and score, with the coal-whippers plunging off stages on deck, as counterweights to measures of coal swinging up, which were then rattled over the side into barges. Here, at her moorings, was tomorrow's steamer for Rotterdam, of which we took good notice, and here tomorrow's for Hamburg, under whose bowsprit we crossed. And now I, sitting in the stern, could see with a faster beating heart Mill Pond Bank and Mill Pond Stairs. "'Is he there?' said Herbert. "'Not yet.' "'Right. He was not to come down till he saw us. Can you see his signal?' "'Not well from here, but I think I see it.' "'Now I see him. Pull both. Easy, Herbert. Oars!' We touched the stairs lightly for a single moment, and he was on board, and we were off again. He had a boat cloak with him, and a black canvas bag, and he looked as like a river pilot as my heart could have wished. "'Dear boy,' he said, putting his arm on my shoulder as he took his seat. "'Faithful dear boy, well done. Thank ye, thank ye.' Again among the tiers of shipping, in and out, avoiding rusty chain cables, frayed hempen hawsers and bobbling buoys, sinking for the moment floating broken baskets, scattering floating chips of wood and shaving, cleaving floating scum of coal in and out under the figurehead of the John of Sunderland, making a speech to the winds, as is done by many Johns, and the Betsy of Yarmouth with a firm formality of bosom, and her knobby eyes starting two inches out of her head, in and out, hammers going in shipbuilders' yards, saws going at timber, clashing engines going at things unknown, pumps going in leaky ships, capstans going, ships going out to sea, and unintelligible sea creatures roaring curses over the bulwarks at respondent lightermen, in and out, out at last upon the clearer river, where the ship's boys might take their fenders in, no longer fishing in troubled waters with them over the side, and where the festooned sails might fly out to the wind. At the stairs where we had taken him aboard, and ever since, I had looked warily for any token of our being suspected. I had seen none. We certainly had not been, and at that time as certainly we were not either attended or followed by any boat. If we had been waited on by any boat, I should have run into shore, and have obliged her to go on, or to make her purpose evident. But we held our own without any appearance of molestation. He had his boat cloak on him, and looked, as I have said, a natural part of the scene. It was remarkable, but perhaps the wretched life he had led accounted for it, that he was the least anxious of any of us. He was not indifferent, for he told me that he hoped to live to see his gentleman one of the best of gentlemen in a foreign country. He was not disposed to be passive or resigned as I understood it, but he had no notion of meeting danger halfway. When it came upon him, he confronted it, but it must come before he troubled himself. "'If you know, dear boy,' he said to me, "'what it is to sit here alonger my dear boy and have my smoke, "'after having been day by day betwixt four walls, "'you'd envy me, but you don't know what it is.' "'I think I know the delights of freedom,' I answered. "'Ah,' said he, shaking his head gravely, "'but you don't know it equal to me.' You must have been under lock and key, dear boy, to know it equal to me. But I ain't going to be low. 
it occurred to me as inconsistent that for any mastering idea he should have endangered his freedom and even his life. But I reflected that perhaps freedom without danger was too much apart from all the habit of his existence to be to him what it would be to another man. I was not far out, since he said, after smoking a little, "'You see, dear boy, when I was over yonder t'other side of the world, I was always a-looking to this side.' and it come flat to be there, for all I was a-growin' rich. Everybody knowed Magwitch, and Magwitch could come, and Magwitch could go, and nobody's head would be troubled about him. They ain't so easy concerning me here, dear boy. Wouldn't be, leastwise, if they knowed where I was. If all goes well, said I, you will be perfectly free and safe again within a few hours. Well, he returned, drawing a long breath, I hope so. And think so. He dipped his hand in the water over the boat's gunwale and said, smiling with that softened air upon him which was not new to me, Aye, I suppose I think so, dear boy. We'd be puzzled to be more quiet and easy-going than we are at present. But uh, it's a flowing so soft and pleasant through the water, perhaps, as makes me think it. I was a-thinking through my smoke just then, that we can no more see to the bottom of the next few hours than we can see to the bottom of this river what I catches hold of. Nor yet we can't no more hold their tide than I can hold this. And it's run through my fingers and gone, you see, holding up his dripping hand. But for your face, I should think you were a little despondent, said I. Not a bit on it, dear boy. It comes a-flowing on so quiet and of that there rippling at the boat's head, making a sort of a Sunday tune. Maybe I'm a-growing a trifle old besides. He put his pipe back in his mouth with an undisturbed expression of face, and sat as composed and contented as if we were already out of England. Yet he was as submissive to a word of advice as if he had been in constant terror, for when we ran ashore to get some bottles of beer into the boat, and he was stepping out, I hinted that I thought he would be safest where he was. And he said, Do you, dear boy? And quietly sat down again. The air felt cold upon the river, but it was a bright day, and the sunshine was very cheering. The tide ran strong. I took care to lose none of it, and our steady stroke carried us on thoroughly well. By imperceptible degrees, as the tide ran out, we lost more and more of the nearer woods and hills, and dropped lower and lower between the muddy banks, but the tide was yet with us when we were off Gravesend. As our charge was wrapped in his cloak, I purposely passed within a boat or two's length of the floating custom-house, and so out to catch the stream alongside of two emigrant ships, and under the bows of a large transport with troops on the forecastle looking down at us. And soon the tide began to slacken, and the craft lying at anchor to swing, and presently they had all swung round, and the ships that were taking advantage of the new tide to get up to the pool began to crowd upon us in a fleet, and we kept under the shore, as much out of the strength of the tide now as we could, standing carefully off from low shallows and mud-banks. Our oarsmen were so fresh, by dint of having occasionally let her drive with the tide for a minute or two, that a quarter of an hour's rest proved full as much as they wanted. We got ashore among some slippery stones while we ate and drank what we had with us and looked about. It was like my own marsh country, flat and monotonous and with a dim horizon, while the winding river turned and turned and the great floating buoys upon it turned and turned and everything else seemed stranded and still. For now the last of the fleet of ships was round the last low point we had headed, and the last green barge, straw-laden, with a brown sail had followed, and some ballast lighters, shaped like a child's first rude imitation of a boat, lay low in the mud, and a little squat shoal lighthouse on open piles stood crippled in the mud on stilts and crutches, and slimy stakes stuck out of the mud, and slimy stones stuck out of the mud, and red landmarks and tide marks stuck out of the mud, and an old landing stage and an old roofless building slipped into the mud, and all about us was stagnation and mud. 
we pushed off again and made what way we could. It was much harder work now, but Herbert and Startop persevered and rode and rode and rode until the sun went down. By that time the river had lifted us a little, so that we could see above the bank. There was the red sun on the low level of the shore, in a purple haze, fast deepening into black. And there was the solitary flat marsh, and far away there were the rising grounds, between which and us there seemed to be no life, save here and there in the foreground a melancholy gull. As the night was falling fast, and as the moon being past the full would not rise early, we held a little council, a short one, for clearly our course was to lie by at the first lonely tavern we could find. So they plied their oars once more, and I looked out for anything like a house. Thus we held on, speaking little, for four or five dull miles. It was very cold, and a collier coming by us with her galley fire smoking and flaring looked like a comfortable home. The night was as dark by this time as it would be until morning, and what light we had seemed to come more from the river than the sky, as the oars in their dripping struck at a few reflected stars. At this dismal time we were evidently all possessed by the idea that we were followed. As the tide made, it flapped heavily at irregular intervals against the shore, and whenever such a sound came, one or other of us was sure to start and look in that direction. Here and there, the set of the current had worn down the bank into a little creek, and we were all suspicious of such places and eyed them nervously. Sometimes, what was that ripple, one of us would say in a low voice, or another, is that a boat, yonder? And afterwards we would fall into a dead silence, and I would sit impatiently, thinking with what an unusual amount of noise the oars worked in the thowels. At length we descried a light and a roof, and presently afterwards ran alongside a little causeway made of stones that had been picked up hard by. Leaving the rest in the boat, I stepped ashore, and found the light to be in a window of a public house. It was a dirty place enough, and I dare say not unknown to smuggling adventurers, but there was a good fire in the kitchen, and there were eggs and bacon to eat, and various liquors to drink. Also there were two double-bedded rooms, such as they were, the landlord said. No other company was in the house than the landlord, his wife, and a grizzled male creature, the jack of the little causeway, who was as slimy and smeary as if he had been low watermark, too. With this assistant, I went down to the boat again, and we all came ashore, and brought out the oars, and rudder, and boat hook, and all else, and hauled her up for the night. We made a very good meal by the kitchen fire, and then apportioned the bedrooms. Herbert and Startop were to occupy one, I and our charge the other. We found the air as carefully excluded from both as if air were fatal to life and there were more dirty clothes and bandboxes under the beds than I should have thought the family possessed. But we considered ourselves well off notwithstanding, for a more solitary place we could not have found. While we were comforting ourselves by the fire after our meal, the Jack, who was sitting in a corner, and who had a bloated pair of shoes on, which he had exhibited while we were eating our eggs and bacon, as interesting relics that he had taken a few days ago from the feet of a drowned seaman washed ashore, asked me if we had seen a four-oared galley going up with the tide. When I told him no, he said she must have gone down then, and yet she took up too when she left there. They must have thought better on it for some reason or another, said the jack, and gone down. A four-oared galley, did you say, said I. A four, said the jack, and two sitters. Did they come ashore here? They put in with a stone two-gallon jar for some beer. I'd have been glad to pison the beer myself, said the jack, or put some rattling physic in it. Why? I know why, said the jack. He spoke in a slushy voice as if much mud had washed into his throat. He thinks, said the landlord, a weakly meditative man with a pale eye, who seemed to rely greatly on his jack, he thinks they was what they wasn't. I knows what I thinks, observed the jack. You thinks custom house, jack, said the landlord. 
I do, said the Jack. Then you're wrong, Jack. Am I? In the infinite meaning of his reply and his boundless confidence in his views, the Jack took one of his bloated shoes off, looked into it, knocked a few stones out of it onto the kitchen floor, and put it on again. He did this with the air of a Jack who was so right that he could afford to do anything. "'Why, what do you make out that they'd done with their buttons then, Jack?' asked the landlord, vacillating weakly. "'Done with their buttons,' returned the Jack. "'Chucked them overboard, swallowed them, sewed them to come up small salad. Done with their buttons.' "'Don't be cheeky, Jack,' remonstrated the landlord in a melancholy and pathetic way. "'A custom-house officer knows what to do with his buttons,' said the Jack, repeating the obnoxious word with the greatest contempt, "'when they comes betwixt him and his own light. "'A four and two sitters don't go hanging and hovering, "'up with one tide and down with another, "'and both with and against another, "'without there being custom-house at the bottom of it.' Saying which, he went out in disdain, and the landlord, having no one to reply upon, found it impracticable to pursue the subject. This dialogue made us all uneasy, and me very uneasy. The dismal wind was muttering round the house, the tide was flapping at the shore, and I had a feeling that we were caged and threatened. A four-oared galley hovering about in so unusual a way as to attract this notice was an ugly circumstance that I could not get rid of. When I had induced Provis to go up to bed, I went outside with my two companions, Startup by this time knew the state of the case, and held another counsel, whether we should remain at the house until near the steamer's time, which would be about one in the afternoon, or whether we should put off early in the morning, was the question we discussed. On the whole, we deemed it the better course to lie where we were until within an hour or so of the steamer's time, and then to get out in her track and drift easily with the tide. Having settled to do this, we returned to the house and went to bed. I lay down with the greater part of my clothes on and slept well for a few hours. When I awoke, the wind had risen, and the sign of the house, the ship, was creaking and banging about with noises that startled me. Rising softly, for my charge lay fast asleep, I looked out of the window. It commanded the causeway where we had hauled up our boat, and as my eyes adapted themselves to the light of the clouded moon, I saw two men looking into her. They passed by under the window, looking at nothing else, and they did not go down to the landing place, which I could discern to be empty, but struck across the marsh in the direction of the Nore. My first impulse was to call up Herbert and show him the two men going away. But reflecting before I got into his room, which was at the back of the house and adjoined mine, that he and Startop had had a harder day than I and were fatigued, I forbore. Going back to my window, I could see the two men moving over the marsh. In that light, however, I soon lost them, and feeling very cold, lay down to think of the matter and fell asleep again. We were up early. As we walked to and fro, all four together, before breakfast, I deemed it right to recount what I had seen. Again, our charge was the least anxious of the party. It was very likely that the men belonged to the custom house, he said quietly, and that they had no thought of us. I tried to persuade myself that it was so, as indeed it might easily be. However, I proposed that he and I should walk away together to a distant point we could see, and that the boat should take us aboard there, or as near there as might prove feasible, at about noon. This being considered a good precaution, soon after breakfast he and I set forth, without saying anything at the tavern. He smoked his pipe as we went along, and sometimes stopped to clap me on the shoulder. One would have supposed that it was I who was in danger, not he, and that he was reassuring me. We spoke very little, as we approached the point, I begged him to remain in a sheltered place while I went on to reconnoiter, for it was towards it that the men had passed in the night. He complied, and I went on alone. There was no boat off the point, nor any boat drawn up anywhere near it, nor were there any signs of the men having embarked there. But, to be sure, the tide was high, and there might have been some footprints under water. 
when he looked out from his shelter in the distance and saw that I waved my hat to him to come up. He rejoined me, and there we waited, sometimes lying on the bank wrapped in our coats and sometimes moving about to warm ourselves until we saw our boat coming round. We got aboard easily and rowed out into the track of the steamer. By that time it wanted but ten minutes of one o'clock, and we began to look out for her smoke. But it was half-past one before we saw her smoke, and soon afterwards we saw behind it the smoke of another steamer. As they were coming on at full speed, we got two bags ready, and took that opportunity of saying goodbye to Herbert and start up. We had all shaken hands cordially, and neither Herbert's eyes nor mine were quite dry, when I saw a four-oared galley shoot out from under the bank but a little way ahead of us and row out into the same track. A stretch of shore had been as yet between us and the steamer's smoke by reason of the bend and wind of the river, but now she was visible, coming head on. I called to Herbert and Startup to keep before the tide that she might see us lying by for her, and I adjured Provis to sit quite still, wrapped in his cloak. He answered cheerily, Trust to me, dear boy, and sat like a statue. Meantime the galley, which was very skillfully handled, had crossed us, let us come up with her, and fallen alongside. Leaving just room enough for the play of the oars, she kept alongside, drifting when we drifted, and pulling a stroke or two when we pulled. Of the two sitters, one held the rudder lines and looked at us attentively, as did all the rowers. The other sitter was wrapped up, much as Provis was, and seemed to shrink and whisper some instruction to the steerer as he looked at us. Not a word was spoken in either boat. Startop could make out after a few minutes which steamer was first, and gave me the word Hamburg in a low voice as we sat face to face. She was nearing us very fast, and the beating of her pedals grew louder and louder. I felt as if her shadow were absolutely upon us when the galley hailed us. I answered, "'You have a return transport there,' said the man who held the lines. "'That's the man wrapped in the cloak. His name is Abel Magwitch, otherwise Provis. I apprehend that man, and call upon him to surrender, and you to assist.' At the same moment, without giving any audible direction to his crew, he ran the galley abroad of us. They had pulled one sudden stroke ahead, had got their oars in, had run athwart us, and were holding on to our gunwale before we knew what they were doing. This caused great confusion on board the steamer, and I heard them calling to us, and heard the order given to stop the paddles, and heard them stop, but felt her driving down upon us irresistibly. In the same moment I saw the steersman of the galley lay his hand on his prisoner's shoulder, and saw that both boats were swinging round with the force of the tide, and saw that all hands on board the steamer were running forward quite frantically. Still, in the same moment, I saw the prisoner start up, lean across his captor, and pull the cloak from the neck of the shrinking sitter in the galley. Still, in the same moment, I saw that the face disclosed was the face of the other convict of long ago. Still, in the same moment, I saw the face tilt backwards with a white terror on it that I shall never forget, and heard a great cry on board the steamer, and a loud splash in the water, and felt the boat sink from under me. It was but for an instant that I seemed to struggle with a thousand mill-weirs and a thousand flashes of light. That instant passed, I was taken on board the galley. Herbert was there, and Startop was there, but our boat was gone, and the two convicts were gone. What with the cries aboard the steamer and the furious blowing off of her steam and her driving on and our driving on, I could not at first distinguish sky from water or shore from shore, but the crew of the galley righted her with great speed, and pulling certain swift strong strokes ahead, lay upon their oars, every man looking silently and eagerly at the water astern. Presently a dark object was seen in it, bearing towards us on the tide, no man spoke, but the steersman held up his hand, and all softly backed water, and kept the boat straight and true before it. As it came nearer, I saw it to be Magwitch, swimming, but not swimming freely. He was taken on board, and instantly manacled at the wrists and ankles. 
The galley was kept steady, and the silent, eager lookout at the water was resumed. But the Rotterdam steamer now came up, and apparently not understanding what had happened, came on at speed. By the time she had been hailed and stopped, both steamers were drifting away from us, and we were rising and falling in a troubled wake of water. The lookout was kept long after all was still again and the two steamers were gone, but everybody knew that it was hopeless now. At length we gave it up and pulled under the shore towards the tavern we had lately left, where we were received with no little surprise. Here I was able to get some comforts for Magwitch, Provis no longer, who had received some very severe injury in the chest and a deep cut in the head. He told me that he believed himself to have gone under the keel of the steamer and to have been struck on the head in rising. The injury to his chest, which rendered his breathing extremely painful, he thought he had received against the side of the galley. He added that he did not pretend to say what he might or might not have done to Compeyson, but that in the moment of his laying hands on his cloak to identify him, that villain had staggered up and staggered back, and they had both gone overboard together when the sudden wrenching of him, Magwitch, out of our boat, and the endeavor of his captor to keep him in it, had capsized us. He told me in a whisper that they had gone down fiercely locked in each other's arms, and that there had been a struggle under water, and that he had disengaged himself, struck out, and swum away. I never had any reason to doubt the exact truth of what he thus told me. The officer who steered the galley gave the same account of their going overboard. When I asked this officer's permission to change the prisoner's wet clothes by purchasing any spare garments I could get at the public house, he gave it readily, merely observing that he must take charge of everything his prisoner had about him. So the pocketbook, which had once been in my hands, passed into the officer's. He further gave me leave to accompany the prisoner to London, but declined to accord that grace to my two friends. The jack at the ship was instructed where the drowned man had gone down, and undertook to search for the body in the places where it was likeliest to come ashore. His interest in its recovery seemed to me to be much heightened when he heard that it had stockings on. Probably it took about a dozen drowned men to fit him out completely, and that may have been the reason why the different articles of his dress were in various stages of decay. We remained at the public house until the tide turned, and then Magwitch was carried down to the galley and put on board. Herbert and Startop were to get to London by land as soon as they could. We had a doleful parting, and when I took my place by Magwitch's side, I felt that that was my place henceforth while he lived. For now my repugnance to him had all melted away, and in the hunted, wounded, shackled creature who held my hand in his— I only saw a man who had meant to be my benefactor, and who had felt affectionately, gratefully, and generously towards me with great constancy through a series of years. I only saw in him a much better man than I had been to Joe. His breathing became more difficult and painful as the night drew on, and often he could not repress a groan. I tried to rest him on the arm I could use in any easy position, but it was dreadful to think that I could not be sorry at heart for his being badly hurt, since it was unquestionably best that he should die. That there were still living people enough who were able and willing to identify him I could not doubt. That he would be leniently treated I could not hope. He who had been presented in the worst light at his trial, who had since broken prison and had been tried again, who had returned from transportation under a life sentence, and who had occasioned the death of the man who was the cause of his arrest. As we returned towards the setting sun we had yesterday left behind us, and as the stream of our hopes seeming all running back, I told him how grieved I was to think that he had come home for my sake. "'Dear boy,' he answered, "'I'm quite content to take my chance. I've seen my boy, and he can be a gentleman without me.' No, I had thought about that while we had been there, side by side. No. Apart from any inclinations of my own, I understood Wemmick's hint now. I foresaw that being convicted, his possessions would be forfeited to the crown. Looky here, dear boy, 
said he. It's best as a gentleman should not be known to belong to me now. Only come to see me, as if you come by chance along a wemmick. Sit where I can see you when I am swore to for the last of many times, and I don't ask no more. I will never stir from your side, said I, when I am suffered to be near you. Please, God, I will be as true to you as you have been to me. I felt his hand tremble as it held mine, and he turned his face away as he lay in the bottom of the boat, and I heard that old sound in his throat, softened now like all the rest of him. It was a good thing that he had touched this point, for it put into my mind what I might not otherwise have thought of until too late, that he need never know how his hopes of enriching me had perished. Radio Readalong is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network, featuring weekly episodes from the world's best stories. Want to listen ahead? Find this entire novel inside the Pelican Society at www.pelicansociety.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>